continue our journey through the book of Acts, chapter 1. The sermon is entitled, Taking the Place of Another. Taking the Place of Another. In the words of the early reformer Martin Luther, Martin Luther said that a religion that gives nothing, that costs nothing, suffers nothing, is worth nothing. Friends, may I submit to you at the very onset of this sermon today that following Jesus is worth something. It is worth laying our lives down for the cause of the gospel and for the work of the Lord Jesus. It is worth dying for. In fact, the word that is used for witness when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, is the word that we gather when we translate the word martyr. In some way, shape, or form, we are called to lay our lives down for the cross of Christ, whether that be in death or servitude to him. And this will be the content of the sermon today, will be steps towards disciple-making. Steps towards disciple-making. And if you will, I'll ask you, let's stand as we read God's Word together. I hope you brought your Bible. If you didn't, we have the Word of God on the screen, and there's a Bible in your pew. So we are surrounded by the Word of the Lord because... The word of the Lord we count as infallible and inerrant and the center of our, of our faith as we learn and grow who Jesus is and who we are. God's word says in chapter 12 of verse 1, we'll read down to the conclusion of this chapter. The Bible says, And they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, which is a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room, And where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And in those days Peter stood up amongst the brothers The company of persons was about 120, and he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who was to become a guide to those who would arrest Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man required a field, the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open, In the middle, and his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that field today was called the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of these men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Bersabbas, who also could be called Justus or Eustace, and Matthias. 
And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these men you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to his own place, and they cast lots for them. And the lots fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Father, we ask for your blessing upon the reading of this word. We know it has been blessed because the Bible, by its very definition, is God-ordained and God-breathed. And so, Father, we are certainly grateful that you have us today setting under the reading of this word and the exposition of this word. I pray today that you would talk to sinners of the good grace of Jesus Christ, and you would talk to your church, Lord, how we might be able to be more in tune to disciple-making and discipleship amongst our community here. We love you, Jesus. Have your way in our service. It's in his name we pray it. Amen. You may be seated. All right, the apostles and the disciples, we know there's disciples because the Bible mentions that there are 120 joined with them. Up until this point, they have obeyed the instruction of the Lord. The Lord told them to go to Jerusalem for the fulfilling of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, which is our framework, which is our outline of the book of Acts, says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. They just saw this miraculous event happen. In fact, it was a number of miraculous events that the apostles and disciples had witnessed. They saw the resurrected Lord Jesus, who had been beaten and bruised and put in the tomb and appeared before them 40 days, teaching alive and well and with a historically risen body. They saw the Lord Jesus and they saw this resurrected Lord ascend into heaven. And all of these miracles and the ones that we will find in the book of Acts, the ones mentioned in this book, are to establish and to authenticate the work of the Lord. And, and anyway, we find that somebody say, well, how do you define a miracle? What is the purpose of a miracle? Any miracle that has ever happened in the history of history, a genuine God-sent miracle, is to authenticate that the work is a work from God Almighty. And so we will find that all through the book of Acts. Now, there is a building of a foundation. The building of the foundation for the future church. They were all together. They were in unison. They would receive power of the Holy Spirit. But there is some work that needs to be done in some preliminary matters that need to be attended to uh, before the Acts 1-8 um, framework goes into effect, if you will. Jesus instructs them. He informs them, his disciples as they ask, Lord, will you fulfill the kingdom, your kingdom now? And he says to them, well, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It is not for you to know the end of the age. It is not for you to fix a date when the Lord Jesus, in effect, will make the wrongs of this world and make them right. When the Lord Jesus will split the sky and return for his own. It is not for you to know that hour. It is by the Lord's own authority. He says, because this is a work for you to do. Once the Holy Spirit 
has come upon you, you will be my witnesses all over the world. So the Acts 1-8 outline and framework is just to say you'll be my witnesses all over the world. Little did they know exactly what this would entail and how this would look. And many of them would die for the sake of the gospel. And death of these early disciples helped to grow the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. Follow any apostle that is mentioned, you will find that they all died a martyr's death, except for John, uh, except for John the Revelator, who wrote the book, uh, the Gospel of John, and also the book of the Revelation. So they will die a martyr's death. And throughout early history, church history, even today, there are people who are dying for the cause of Christ and for the gospel of Jesus. They are genuine martyrs in that sense. It was the early church father by the name of Tertullian that said this, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so church history has proven itself time and again that when there is severe persecution... And the church scatters, that we find church growth in those areas. So, the stage had been set. Jesus had ascended to the Father. And the disciples are overjoyed. They're overwhelmed. They are in a state of shock, so it seems. And the way that we can tell this is by the tone of the angels who looked at them while they were standing, gazing at the Lord, ascend. And they said, why are you standing here gazing as in a state of shock? And if I could look at the, the angels today or these two messengers in maybe a colloquial way of thinking about this, they would be, hey, hey, what are you doing? Why are you looking up to heaven? There's work to do. There's work to do. Why are you wandering and staring into heaven? You have your marching orders now. Go, wake up, they would say. Now they would find themselves going to Jerusalem and uh, we find that in the next portion of our text that we read this morning. And if I was to lay at least a couple of different steps of disciple-making found within chapter 1 in verses 12 through 26, I would say that the first step of disciple-making is prayer and fellowship. Prayer and fellowship. There's nothing like meeting together with God's people and praying together in one accord. The Bible tells us in verse 12 that they, that is the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, which is a Sabbath day journey. And no doubt they were astonished at what had just happened. What a wonderful, great, exciting time for them to be alive. This is the Messiah that they so longed for all the way through the ages. And now he has manifested himself, he has resurrected, and he has ascended to the Father, and he has left them work to do. What an amazing time for them to be alive. To, to be alive and to see Jesus resurrected, to see him ascend. These guys had no excuse for not following the Lord Jesus, even unto death. And so they make their way from the Mount of Olives, and they make their way down to Jerusalem, what the Bible tells us is a Sabbath day journey, which according to theologians, early Jewish tradition, and also Numbers 35.5, that this is approximately 2,000 steps, or a Sabbath day journey. And I would imagine a Sabbath day journey, if you will, according to the Jews, is 2,000 cubits from Jerusalem, and they would often call this the bond of the Sabbath. We find this in Numbers 35 and verse 5. So if the apostles 
would have had on their Jerusalem Fitbits for that day, they would have easily been able to log in 2,000 steps if they were cataloging them. 2,000 cubics. In fact, Numbers 35, 5 is where this is laid out in the Torah or the law that says, you shall measure outside the city. On the east side, 2,000 cubics. On the south side, 2,000 cubics. And on the west side, 2,000 cubics. And on the north side, 2,000 cubics, which is, as they call, a Sabbath day journey or 2,000 steps. But we carry on, verse 13. The Bible tells us, And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Obeying the words of the Lord Jesus, they went to Jerusalem to await this promise of the Holy Spirit. And, I, and I'm sure they did not understand all that was meant by receiving the Holy Spirit they probably didn't understand what all of this entailed, but their senses and their expectations were heightened. And I think about this reference to the church. There was a level of expectancy, or they never would have gone. This level of expectancy and, and just knowing that God is, is going to do something good. And I think about this reference not just for the early church, but for Piney Grove. But for our local assembly here, I think about this reference in, in this, if that we could reach a place of expecting the Lord to work in and through His, His, His people, and expecting God to do, to do a good work. Maybe for us, nothing excites you, or nothing excites us anymore. But there should be something that excites us, let's say, when a person becomes a new believer in Jesus. That should excite you. When a person stirs the waters of baptism as they have, as they have made a proclamation to, to follow Jesus and have been saved and therefore they stir the waters of baptism, that ought to excite you. When a young person that has, is growing in their faith, you can track that they are growing and growing mature in their faith, that should excite you. When a person stands up and gives a mission report of what's going on in, you know, in the next... Uh, county over that ought to excite you shouldn't it that god is up to something good amongst us that should bring us a level of excitement and anticipation that god is doing some good work among us maybe it is this that we have become desensitized and we have we have lost that excitement that and that allure of the gospel maybe we are not reflecting on the gospel as we should in our life every day or as John Piper and many other theologians before, that we preach the gospel to ourselves daily. In short, nothing excites us, nothing surprises us anymore, at least not like it used to. As they are meeting in this upper room, they face the dilemma. And I'm going to paraphrase this dilemma. If I was a fly on the wall, I think it might go something like this. Of course, Luke would render this a little different, but I'm going to paraphrase it for you. My paraphrase would be this. Peter leans in to the apostles. He says, hey guys. <laughs> Did they say that back then? Hey guys. Hey guys, the Lord has called 12 of us unto his service. And I think it best that we honor what the Lord Jesus left for us. That we try to honor and we try to replicate what Jesus had left for us. 
And my friends, that is the building blocks. That is the, primi the, uh, the primitive uh, on-surface rendering of discipleship and disciple-making. What is so astonishing about this is that this is sometimes overlooked. They are going to honor what the Lord Jesus taught them or left for them. And it's like thinking of the building blocks uh, left for them of what to do. Disciple-making was taking shape right before them, and Jesus was not physically with them any longer. If you follow the ministry of Jesus, you drop into Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you follow what Jesus did in his ministry as, as, as a rabbi, of a master teacher. You'll find the same framework throughout. Jesus came, he called. He called his disciples to himself. Jesus taught and was out front. The disciples watched. Jesus said, disciples, join me. Apostles, join me. Jesus worked, the apostles worked beside them. As time went on and as they began to learn, Jesus stepped back. And he sent them out to work. Jesus watched as they worked. A good example of that is the disciples going out in twos to witness the kingdom of God. And now, as Jesus has ascended after his resurrection, now Jesus has left his disciples and apostles to do the work. And who are the, the disciples today? You and I. We are his disciples we are his disciples. And you know that disciple-making is on the right trajectory when people start replicating the biblical principles and truth that are taught. They start replicating in their lives. They hung close to what the Lord Jesus taught so much so the scholars have even surmised that they returned to the same upper room where they shared the Last Supper with the Lord. We got to get right. We got to get there. Soak up every word the Lord Jesus left. This step towards disciple-making is closely following the Lord's commands, and that's the same for us. Now, there are 11 here, and there needs to be one called amongst their inner ranks if they're going to follow the framework that Jesus left for them. And Before they, they vote on another disciple or another apostle, I want you to notice their demeanor or their state of mind, which sets the framework for this step towards disciple making and that is they were praying they were in one accord devoting themselves to what prayer together with the women Mary mother of Jesus and his brothers now I like this Greek word that is used uh, for uh, one accord in fact there's a Greek word and it's like that long and it one Greek word and it is translated with one accord it is properly translated in your Bibles with one mind or with one accord and denotes that they had entire harmony of their views and their feelings. They were, there was no division yet. There was no ulterior motives yet. There was no hurt feelings yet. There was no preference-driven agendas yet. They were knit together in a bond that is stronger than death. In this primitive view of the early church, before any outside, idolatrous, preference-driven junk got into their worldview, this vision of the early church, and as soon as the Holy Spirit indwelt the church, is the most pristine that you'll ever see the church in existence. And as they work along side by side, 
The flesh begins to rise up. The fallen nature begins to intervene. And you begin to see how outside influences and preference-driven agendas begin to infect and toxify in some degree. But an example that we get is this of gathering together, being in one accord, knit together, and devoting themselves to prayer. Or we can translate that, carried away in fervent prayer. When was the last time you prayed at least for 10 minutes straight? At least 10 minutes. How about 20? 30? How about 5? Now listen, I'm not being legalistic, but the point is this. When was the last time we were carried away in fervent prayer? It's interesting that Luke mentions here the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, because this is a concept that was foreign to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, to have women in their inner meeting prayer time. Normally, the men would be separated. They would have a time when they would dedicate themselves to the reading of Scripture and prayer, and the women were on the outside, the outer court, and, and they were never to be able to mingle together. And so by this, the Lord is, is saying, no, my word is for everyone, and my will is for, is, for every, is for everyone. There's no wall of division. There's no discrimination. Women, men, girl, boy can pray and seek the will of the Lord. So, they're there devoting themselves to genuine Christ-centered prayer and fellowship as they awaited the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. The building block for discipleship, togetherness, knit together, a, a bond that is stronger than death, and then prayer. Being able to pray together. There's nothing like being able to sit together and pray for somebody in need. And to be broken about that need. I wonder, would a person be able to say of you, that is a praying person. If you want somebody to pray for you, go to this person. Would people be able to say of, of Piney Grove, that that is a kingdom praying church? What do I mean by that? That we are a church that prays for the lost, and those who are in a spiritual deficit in their lives. And not only do we pray, but then we go and invest the time. Now don't get me wrong, praying over the prayer list is, is good. We ought to pray for those who are afflicted and those who are sick, those who are ill, those who are going into surgery or coming out of surgery, and it's good. But we need to further that with kingdom praying, praying for the spiritual vitality of each other. Because... And I've said this before, we just do not know one another spiritually as we should. When they leave the upper room and go towards the Acts 1-8 mission field, they are going to know that they had spent time with the Lord and one another. We have many missionaries on the field today, not just those going to Windsor or other parts of the United States, but we have missionaries on the field, some that we support and Either, either by our direct giving or through our uh, cooperative program. A missionary's life, may I remind you, would not have any effect without fervent prayer for himself first and without the prayer of others for them. 
There's a region in Africa that comes to mind when I think of prayer, and I think of this often, fervent prayer. We talk about togetherness and fervent prayer together, and these models that the early church left, yeah, that's a, a great and wonderful uh, discipline of unity and praying together. Church history has demonstrated time and again that some of the first converts to Christianity were very, very serious about being moved in prayer and fervent prayer. There's a, a special place in Africa um, that exists, and it will go una- uh, unnamed just simply because it security purposes, where believers would go to pray. In this village, they had a special room set up, like, almost like a little chapel, in their backyards, and they would often travel from their house to this special room outside of the village, and they would go there to pray and to have solitude. To reach this prayer room from their back door, from their hut, they would have to walk through a path. And on this path, they would use this private footpath through the brush. And one of the ways in which the villagers would know whether or not that that household was a praying household was if the grass and the weeds on that path, if they were overgrown. person wouldn't have known. Hey, he or she is, they're not praying. It was evident that the person to whom it belonged, that trail was not praying very much. Here's where it becomes interesting. Here's where it becomes a testament of togetherness and fellowship that we must have for one another. Because looking out on a few of these prayer paths that exist, they had grown up, and it brought concern about their walk with the Lord and the village together. And when everyone in that village would notice that this path, what they called a prayer path, was overgrown, he or she would go to that person, a person in the village would go to this person, and they would simply say, friend, there's grass on your path. And leave it at that. There is grass on your path. Maybe it is time for us to take responsibility for some wayward brothers and sisters and simply warn them, there is grass on your path. Your spiritual road is not as worn and traveled as it used to be. How can I pray for you? These disciples, they knew the value of fellowship and of prayer, and you do as well, don't you? Prayer and fellowship. Secondly, Look to fill the gap. Look to fill the gap. This is really where it also takes a very pointed applicable point in the text. Many times and in ministry, there are deficits that need filling. Ministries here, ministries there, where people get tired, people need a break, and people need some time to reflect and some time to refresh and to thank, Lord, what would you have me do? It is in these times We must think, God, would you have me step in and to relieve in this ministry? God, what would you have me do? Where would you have me serve? Would you have me serve there? It also makes me think that what have I done to effectively have somebody fill the role that I'm about to lead? Well, the case with Judas isn't as tame as what that might sound 
but it is a tragic reminder. These disciples were praying, they were communing with another, and Peter addresses them. Look at verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up amongst the brothers, and Luke's commentary tells us the company of persons was in about 120, and he said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled with the Holy Spirit, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who were arrested. The Bible clearly tells us by Luke's commentary, it is 120 people who met in this upper room and they are, they're waiting the Holy Spirit. And then after the Holy Spirit falls, the Bible tells us, if you'll fast forward, that they, because of the preaching and the admonition of, of the Word of God, the lifting up the, of the Word of God, that the church grew daily. But I want you to notice something that we might overlook. Notice what is at the center of this announcement from Peter. What is at the center from verse 15, 15 and 16 and on through? What is at the center of Peter's announcements? It is the scriptures. It is the word of God. Peter has been enlightened by the events surrounding the life of Jesus and his betrayal by Judas. So he turns to his recollection of the word of God, what he has learned and he expounds, he expounds. May I also challenge you, if anyone ever tells you that expository preaching is a man-made invention, you need to look at the life of Jesus and his disciples. Look at the life of Jesus and his apostles. Look at the life of Peter. Peter exclaims, brothers, the word of God instructs us concerning Judas. Brothers, the scriptures have been fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the voice of David about Judas. Peter's expounding. He's connecting. He's cross-referencing Scripture. The Holy Spirit was, the, uh, as far as Judas, was the guide for those who arrested Jesus. Verse 17, for he was numbered amongst us and was allotted his share in ministry. Now Peter is expounding, in case you're wondering what scripture that Peter is expounding from in the Psalms, he's expounding from two different places in Psalm. Psalm 41 verse 9, it says, Even my close friend in whom I have trusted, who ate bread, ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So this is the first place that Peter is expounding upon. And before that we think that Judas is the epitome of evil, in so much so that we would say, well, do you know anybody who has named their child Judas? How about a Hitler? How about a Hitler or a Judas? But before we think about Judas as this epitome of evil, evil I must remind you that Judas ministered right beside of the other twelve. Jesus had Judas with the others going out in twos to preach about the kingdom of God being at hand. Look at that episode in the book of Mark. The Bible tells us that the twelve went out. That includes Judas. He preached right next to them. Jesus knew all along of what was buried deep in the heart of Judas, for the Lord knew that he was a betrayer. He was the treasurer for the apostles. So he worked just as hard as the rest goes to show you that just because a person can break their back in ministry doesn't automatically mean that they know Jesus. Just because a person breaks their back in ministry or serves in some ministerial aspect 
Does it automatically mean they know Christ? Peter says that Judas was appointed by Jesus to share in this ministry. And I love the way the Bible engages with the reader and in the worshiper. By the way, it's you and me. Because we have the author's commentary note. This is indicated by the parenthetical that Luke will commentate on what happened to Judas. So notice what happens. So this is Luke's notes, verse 18 and 19. He says, now this man, Judas, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of all his, his bow, all of his bowels gushed out. Rated R scene here, as you can imagine. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that field became known in its own language, the field of blood. Luke is implying, in case you, have, you haven't been up to date on what happened, that Judas betrayed the Lord for a mere 30 pieces of silver. And some would say that would be the cost of a, of a common slave or a servant. Judas is feeling guilty. He tried to back out of the deal. He felt sorry for what he had done. And by the way, that is different than outright repentance. He felt sorry for what he has done. It is likened to being sorry for being caught or called out for his offense. He bought this field, which in the Aramaic means field of blood. He hung himself. He fell from this high place and was gutted due to the fall. So, as to not get sidetracked on, on um, the narrative of Judas, because I don't want you going out of here and saying, man, that was really disgusting, preacher, to sidetrack you from thinking about Judas, because this is not about Judas. Okay, <laughs> this is not about Judas, but Jesus and what to do next. And Peter references Scripture yet again. This time, he uses two other places. One is from Psalm 69, verse 25. Psalm 69, 25. And the other is Psalm 109 and verse 8. This verse in its culmination of the two and in reference to Judas and the field of, the blood, a field of blood. He says, and this is what he says in reference to those two Psalms. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And then the second portion of that Psalm, Let another take his office. So what Peter has done is he has expounded on the word. And he has drawn this reference in his interpretation from the psalm. And with that, with that being said, uh, they moved to vote on another person to take the place of Judas Iscariot. Peter used the exposition of Scripture to bring them to this point. And upon this exposition from the psalms, Peter highlights the point that Ahithophel and his fellow conspirators against David we see in Psalms, is not as severe as an enemy that Judas was to the Lord Jesus. So this one who lifted up his heel against David, Peter draws the connection and says, he is not as bad. He will not live on in infamy as Judas who betrayed Jesus. He's expounding the scripture. He's expounding from God's word. He's opening up and preaching. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all this time, verse 21, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now Peter is setting the criteria for this apostleship. They must be one of the men who was walking beside of us 
since the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it's important for the foundation of the kingdom of Jesus that this person be a true apostle. Okay, he must have heard Jesus teach. He must have seen his life. He must have visualized and seen the resurrection. He must have heard Jesus teach. And so they put two forth. Barabbas, or uh, Barsabbas, who's called Eustace, or Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. By the way, this is the last time you'll see this in the Bible, casting lots. And they fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. What is interesting is that they chose Matthias, but after this election, it's an interesting fact, except for Peter and John, none of the original 12 disciples are mentioned in the book of Acts after verse 13. Interesting. They prayed before the Lord because they knew the importance of this global vision that the Lord had for them because it's much bigger than Jerusalem. And there in that upper room, 120 Mixed and mingled in anticipation of the work of the Lord. And in just a few short hours, the Holy Spirit of the Lord is going to fill that room in a way that they had not yet experienced. Jesus said that I must go away in order that the Comforter may come. Reference John 16 and verse 7. I must go so the Holy Spirit can come or the Comforter. So let's close up this narrative in preparation for the next. So far, the apostles have met together. They are together in one accord, a bond that is stronger than death. They have called Matthias to take the place of Judas Iscariot. And in terms of ministry, in terms of disciple-making, it is an ever-changing, shifting dynamic. And here is my challenge for those in ministry. Here's my challenge for those in ministry, maybe on the very precipice or very, at the very crossroad, of saying, hey, I need a break. I need a time. Here's my challenge. Who is taking your place when it is time to step away? Better yet, who are you preparing to fill the gap once you are gone? See, the problem over the ages and through the history of the church, the modern church, is people are placed in roles. Don't you hear me on this? People are placed in roles out of necessity and not by preparation. And not by preparation. My prayer is this. That every single ministry in this church will be looking out to see who can we build up to take the place of those who will step away. Because listen, everybody needs a break. Everybody needs a time of refreshing. Who is going to take my place when I step away or when the Lord calls home? Who's going to take that place and by the way the prerequisite for any ministry is that they must know the Lord Jesus that's a given it was this criteria they needed to meet by the one who filled Judas's place and it must be for you and I as well we must know that we have been forgiven by the blood of the lamb and have been regenerated by the work of the triune God in this upper room the two building blocks from a disciple-making perspective, was this. Prayer and fellowship. Prayer and fellowship. And as they were together, and as they were praying, 
And as they were united together, it led them to say, okay, who is stepping up? Who is stepping up where they are needed? Let's pray together.